Hey, welcome. Glad to have you with us. Glad to be with you. Jordan is in Potterhorn Guns and Archery. Good morning, Jordan. Good morning, sir. I am wired. We've got a ton of audio that we're going to play today. Uh, I got two pieces from John Stossel. And, and the reason I went for the, the uh, second piece is Stossel originally worked at ABC. And he kind of had an epiphany, left ABC, uh, became a libertarian, and worked at Fox for a while. And now he's at Reason Magazine. And at Reason Magazine, he did a piece on guns. And I wondered... Where did he stand on guns when he was at ABC? So I dug up some audio on that, and uh, we'll play it today. Uh, you and I have talked in the past, Jordan, about about gun buybacks, <laughs> and uh, we don't we we ju we just don't see much point in it. Um, but there's a great story out of uh, New York. Uh, I started my talk career in New York, in Syracuse, just outside. The city where this happened, uh, the city this this event happened in was Utica, New York. And apparently the state of New York decided a gun buyback was a good idea. And in particular, Jordan, they went after those nasty ghost guns. Scary. You had a ghost gun, they gave you a little extra cash. Curious to see how that worked out? It, 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 I think that is a wonderful story. I, I loved reading about that. That's great. <laughs> All right. Well, here's how they covered it in New York. General's gun buyback program aims to curb gun crime. But one man claims he made on a 3D printer for the sole, made guns on a 3D printer for the sole purpose of selling them at Utica's buyback event. As News Channel 2's Jolene Ferris reports, he walked away with $21,000 in taxpayer money. <laughs> On August 27th, the state attorney general's office held a community gun buyback program at the Utica Police Department. No questions asked, they'd buy from you as many guns as you wanted to surrender. Nobody thought this through. If you, if you look at the flyer, it is just the, 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 the gravest thing that Letitia James could have done. Is she, she literally put a bounty on 3D printed guns. She said, I will give you extra money if it doesn't have a serial number on it. She, they made no specifications. They didn't, they didn't touch on any details. There was no fine print. And that's why I was able to walk out with $21,000. After seeing people posting on Twitter about using 3D printers to make ghost guns to sell at gun buybacks, a man who identified himself to us as Kem got to work on a $200 3D printer he got for Christmas. Well, I 3D printed a bunch of lower receivers and frames for different kinds of firearms. Then he drove six hours to Utica. He says, hey, you're here for the gun buyback? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm here. And he sees the toad. He's like, oh, how many firearms do you have? And I said, 110. This began an all-day negotiating and haggling session with staff from the state attorney general's office. And it ended with the, the guy and a lady from the budget office uh, finally coming around with the 42 gift cards and counting them out in front of me. $21,000 in $500 gift cards. We asked the state attorney general's office a few weeks ago if they were aware this might be happening at gun buyback programs. They didn't answer the question, responding only that the buyback in Utica helped keep families safe and was a big success. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it was. I'm sure, I'm sure handing over $21,000 in gift cards 
to some punk kid after getting a bunch of plastic junk was a rousing success. Kem says he had two objectives, make some cash and make a point. And gun buybacks are a fantastic way of showing, number one, that your policies don't work. And number two, you're creating perverse demand. You're causing people to show up to these events only to make money. And they don't actually reduce crime whatsoever. Utica police referred all questions to the AG's office. We reached out to them again today. No response. Jolene Ferris, News Channel 2. Wow. What a what a great story, Jordan. <laughs> I wish it hadn't gone national. Maybe the rest of us would have got a chance to do something similar. Well, yeah. There, if <laughs> I bet they're going to fix that for next time. <laughs> if there is a... See, the problem is that uh, in Missouri, uh, you don't see a lot of that kind of nonsense. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but it'd be worth it to, you know, if, if you could uh, find a, a, a state or some, maybe Kansas City or St. Louis would do it. <laughs> 21 grand. I mean, you know, the beauty of those 3D printers is you can turn them on and go to bed at night, and they'll just work all night long. <laughs> it's a fantastic idea. When I first read about that, I was like, ah, that's great. $21,000. How many AR-15s could he buy for that? Uh, 24. That seems like a real good deal. <laughs> it does. I'll bet they check his taxes to see that he... It declares 21000 <laughs> I figured they'd give out gift cards for like Whole Foods or something to really limit what you could do. No. Cash. He's, he's, this guy is good. I kind of envy him. That was, <laughs> that was rather, uh, rather genius if you ask me. Yeah. Um, speaking of New York, they had a little bit of a setback. Did you read about this? They're, they passed this gun control law. Yep. Uh, so that, if you wanted to carry in a business, the business had to put a sign on the door that it was okay. Normally, you put a sign up on the door that says, no guns allowed. But they went the other route in an attempt, I suspect, uh, to intimidate people uh, uh, into carrying. Uh, then, if you wanted a concealed carry permit, you had to give the uh, law enforcement access to your social media accounts so they could review it. Boy, doesn't that sound safe? Uh, then they had a prohibition on carrying in what they called sensitive places. Your doctor's office, Times Square, restaurants, places of entertainment, uh, public transportation. Like, you know, they just arbitrarily decided Times Square was off limits. And uh, they also uh, said that you had to have an in-person interview with law enforcement. <laughs> but that doesn't come down on the people that can't afford to do that, like uh, voter ID laws, right? That's why we, we can't have voter ID laws, because it is unfair to, uh, to certain people who don't have enough money to be able to go and, and get a photo ID or pay the, the $10 or $35 to get it. But... Uh, it's okay as long as we're talking about firearms? Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, you, thank of you. Of course. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think they're going to lose on that, uh, their, their vague definition of the uh, special zones or, or however they, they phrase that. Because it, it looks like it's just about everywhere. And yeah. I, I think that'll be finally what, what strikes that down. But it's going to take years. Well, I mean, no, it isn't, actually. Uh, good so? news right now. <laughs> uh, this law was passed in an attempt to find loopholes to get around the Supreme Court's uh, latest uh, gun decision. 
And they went to court, and they prevailed. And every one of those things that I just mentioned, uh, they were restrained. They were told, no, no, you can't do that. What, are you crazy? So the businesses don't have to post the signs to allow. Uh, you don't have to give your social media accounts for review. Uh, those sensitive places have all been struck down. And no, no in-person interview with law enforcement. Uh, the lawyers representing New York now have three days to appeal the ruling to a higher court. But it looks pretty good for the Second Amendment in New York State. There we go. New York State update. <laughs> Makes you glad you're in Missouri, doesn't it? <laughs> like, what's left of the Second Amendment in New York State? <laughs> yeah, they're being forced. God, it must make them crazy. Uh, it must absolutely make them crazy. Uh, and we've got an affiliate. Uh, I've got an affiliate for Gary on Guns in Utica, New York. Can't wait to hear what they have to say on the national. All right, we're up against the clock. Got to take a quick break. You're listening to Gary on Guns. It is uh, 20 minutes. Well, 20 minutes after. Glad to have you with us. Glad to be with you on Gary on Guns. Uh, Jordan is in from Powderhorn Guns and Archery. And Brian, of course, tried to, he tried to uh, uh, put into my head that it would be uh, Powderhorn Guns and Ammo, but I didn't bite. I don't, I don't think Brian would do something like no, that. No, I think you're just here. I would never do that. No. I, I, I mistakenly gave the, uh, the place the wrong name because I've been hearing this guy in the morning show <laughs> do that, and I, I just thought that was... Oh, it's my fault that you did that. <laughs> I see. All right. Uh, John Stossel did a, a piece on gun control. And uh, he did it with uh, John Lott. I thought it was a great piece. And Stossel is, is kind of an interesting guy because he started off at ABC News. He's, uh, he's won several Emmys. And he started off kind of left of center. I was curious to see, you know, if he had an epiphany uh, at ABC or after. Uh, and I found an ABC piece. And actually, I was surprised to see that uh, he was anti-gun control right from the get-go. But here's his latest uh, on gun control. You've probably heard that America has the most mass shootings in the world. That's often given as a reason for more gun control. But economist John Lott looked into that claim and he says it's a myth based on one bogus study. The United States has the most mass shootings. By far the most public mass shootings. You don't see murder on this kind of scale with this kind of frequency in any other advanced nation on earth. Where'd that claim come from? Obama and everyone else base it on. A study done by University of Alabama professor Adam Lankford. University of Alabama professor Adam Lankford. This is Adam Lankford. I studied 171 countries for more than 40 years, 1966 to 2012. And essentially the answer was not surprisingly, the United States has by far the most public mass shooters. His claim received coverage in hundreds of news stories, but all these people were misled by Langford. Langford's study claimed that since 1966, there were 90 mass public shooters in the United States, more than any other country. Langford counted 202 shooters in the rest of the world. Langford claimed complete data were available for 171 countries. But how did Langford find every shooting in all these countries, most of which don't speak English? And how did he find all the cases in the years before the Internet? Few governments collect this data. 
finding complete data for mass public shootings in just one developing country, say India, in the 1970s, would be an incredible feat. Many of these shootings would have been reported only in local outlets, in the local language. That shooting at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. On the other hand, United States mass public shootings are well documented and hard to miss. If Langford undercounted foreign cases because he missed finding old newspapers or had trouble with language barriers, his paper's entire conclusion that the United States had the most mass public shootings would fall apart. Many journalists and researchers asked Langford for his data. Not only do he refuse to share a list of his cases or even the number of shootings he found in each country, which are nowhere in his paper, he refused to share an explanation for how he found those cases. That's academic malpractice. Asked if he used foreign languages to search for these shootings, Langford stated, my data were not limited to English language searches. Asked what languages he used, Langford refused to provide that information. This is all the assistance I can provide at this time, Langford said. Look, I've researched crime for decades, and I've published dozens of peer-reviewed academic articles on the subject. Langford won't even respond to my emails with simple questions. Now, maybe he doesn't want to talk to me because I'm well known for my research, more guns, less crime. But Langford has refused to share his list of shooters and methods, even with strong gun control advocates. This all seemed very suspicious to me. So the think tank that I run, the Crime Prevention Research Center, researched it. Unlike Langford, we took a lot of time to find all the foreign cases we could. We even got translators to identify cases. Using the same definition of mass public shooters Langford used, four more people killed in a public place, not part of some other type of crime, we found that he grossly undercounted foreign attacks. We counted well over 3,000 shooters, at least 15 times more shooters as Langford claimed. 31% of total shooters, despite the fact that we only have 5% of the world's population. Of the 86 countries where we have identified any mass public shootings occurring, the United States ranks 62nd. Norway, Finland, Switzerland, and Russia are European countries with significantly higher rates of murders for mass public shootings. The explanation is firearm ownership rate. When Langford's data are fixed, there is no relationship between gun ownership rates and mass public shooters. There's a lesson here. Langford's critical but simple error could have been picked up if journalists had only demanded his data and methods before publicizing his study. Journalists should learn to be skeptical. In the meantime, we should all be skeptical of news coverage of studies like this that simply confirm what journalists and people want to hear. Before releasing this video, I also asked Langford for his data and methods for finding shootings in foreign language media. Langford would not provide the information. All right, so uh, here's kind of the takeaway from this for me, Jordan, is the media are irresponsible. Well, yes, they are selling themselves. It's not, it's not news anymore. So, yes, very irresponsible. When when they started pushing the uh, secondhand smoke causes cancer and lung disease and heart attacks and all that stuff, I did my homework on the studies, 
and I became, I was the guy I was on Fox and MSNBC, and everybody was calling me to, uh, to get my side of the story. And I was stunned at the ignorance. I mean, these people wouldn't look at these studies. They wouldn't take them apart. Uh, they wouldn't uh, check with epidemiologists to find out if they were accurate. They just assumed that whatever the conclusion was on the part of the, you know, uh, uh, secondhand smoke argument must have been true. And it was willful ignorance on their part. Uh, so I know how the media work. And they treat guns the same way they did the secondhand smoke studies. They don't, they don't call the experts. They don't do any deep dive because they don't want to. They want to believe that the, the data are accurate. And they've been getting away with this on guns for the longest time. And I don't, know, I don't know why the media are so willfully ignorant. But what exactly do they want? Is it, is it their goal that, uh, that we be vulnerable? What, what, what makes them not want to know the truth? I'm always baffled by that. You know, it, it always seems to come down to needing to fit into the agenda of what they are trying to sell. And, and sometimes we're talking about selling by people watching their show. Okay. But they're also typically trying to sell candidates. They're trying to sell people on uh, a way of, of life in the U.S. So there doesn't seem to be any desire to have a conversation or to have a, a study about anything. It's just what can I find where where somebody that's not me will say that, yes, we are 100% right about what we're saying. And, and when you go looking for that, that's the wrong way. Most scientists will tell you that's 100% the wrong way to do anything. Um, you you got to go out there and say, okay, now why am I wrong? Why am I wrong? What 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 out there can prove that I'm wrong? What out there can then prove what I'm right? And then try to make a <laughs> a smart guess about what I'm actually doing. Yeah, they they don't want to know. Uh, coming up in the next segment, we've got another piece, and this one uh, deals with uh, the government doing studies on guns. The Democrats desperately want this. Uh, they want the federal government to do a. Uh, a, a study on guns and use the excuse that it's a public health issue. And they're really upset because the Republicans kind of pulled the plug on this years ago. Uh, and with good reason. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'm going to play this piece. It's from reason TV and it, it, it apparently, apparently the New York times tried to make the case for why the CDC should be studying guns. Anybody who's watched how the CDC handled the China flu ought to be really leery of them doing any studies on gun control because they clearly don't know what they're doing over there. But the uh, but the left terribly upset that they that they haven't been able to do this, and uh, New York Times trying to convince the world that it is something that the federal government should do. So we'll play that. We've got show and tell coming up because we got some really neat firearms coming in from Powderhorn Guns and Archery. Jordan, he's with me right now. And Gary on Gun. Hey, welcome to Gary on Guns. Uh, we've got uh, Powderhorn Guns and Archery on board with us this morning. And uh, we've been talking about uh, uh, these studies that have been done. I kind of wanted to concentrate on this because... Uh, these studies are often really, really faulty. One of the things Jordan, uh, Jordan is, is who's in from Powderhorn Guns and Archery. They sent him here because nobody knows more than 
Jordan. This morning. Yeah. You only want to get out of bed at dark 30 <laughs> on a Saturday morning. Uh, anyway, uh, Jordan, they, they are upset that the federal government... For years, this were, were barred. The CDC was barred from looking at guns as, as a public health issue and doing studies. So um, we've got a, a piece on that, and we're going to play that now. After decades of silence, the CDC is speaking up about America's gun violence epidemic. Gun violence in America is a public health emergency. Gun violence is a public health issue. We need to start thinking of this as a public health crisis. Republican Congressman Jay Dickey is infamous for a 1996 law prohibiting the CDC from using federal funds to advocate for gun control. The Dickey Amendment. The so-called Dickey Amendment. Remember the Dickey Amendment, which has effectively kept the CDC from studying gun violence? What inspired the Dickey Amendment was a blockbuster 1993 CDC-funded study which claimed to show that owning guns made Americans overwhelmingly less safe. Having a gun in your home not only doesn't protect you, but it puts your family at risk. According to a recent film published by the New York Times, the NRA lobbied for the Dickey Amendment because the 1993 study made an overwhelming case against gun ownership, and it wanted to stop the CDC from ever backing studies of this sort again. The NRA didn't think that that would be good for business. And this really spurred them on to attack us with much greater fury. The problem with this story is that the 1993 study doesn't actually show what its proponents claim. It had serious statistical problems that stem from its approach to the topic of gun violence, underscoring why the Dickey Amendment was good policy. A public health agency isn't well suited to analyzing social science issues of this sort. This is not serious research designed to improve individual decisions or social policy. It's scientific trappings used to camouflage arguments no one would take seriously if they were presented clearly. Statistician Aaron Brown has taught at NYU and the University of California at San Diego. He's a columnist for Bloomberg and an expert on risk management. The initial conception of this study is that a gun is like a pathogen in your home that causes homicide in unspecified ways. A gun is like a homicide virus. Brown points out that unlike with death from disease, when a gun kills someone in a home, the surrounding circumstances are highly relevant. The researchers count all deaths equal, whether the homeowner or her family, or a homicidal home invader. Someone not blinded by disease control thinking would focus on how these guns were used for self-defense, suicide, accidental injury, domestic violence, or seized by an attacker and used against the owner. This could be useful information for someone weighing the benefits and risks of keeping a gun in the house. A major flaw in the study is that it attributes homicides to the presence of guns in the home, even if a gun wasn't involved. In fact, the majority of the homicides don't have a gun at all. And if a gun was involved, the researchers don't bother to ask if it was the homeowner's gun. Get vaccinated and get paid. Oh, wait a, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That, that's not supposed to be there. Let me go back. The risk was 200% greater that someone in your family would be shot and killed with a gun. And the risk that someone in your home would commit suicide with a gun was five times greater. The 400% increase in risk. That may be what Rosenberg would have liked the study to find, but it did not. 
It did find that people living in homes with guns were murdered in their homes more frequently than people living in similar houses without guns. But only 25% more frequently, not 200% or five times. And far more dangerous than guns were living in a gated community, living alone or renting. Having been in trouble for drinking at work made you 20 times more likely to be murdered in your home. The politicized nature of the study is shown by ignoring the big risks it found and highlighting one of the smallest. But what this really shows is the methodology is absurd. No one would take it seriously if we applied it to renting or gated communities, and no one should take it seriously applied to guns. Brown says that the authors also failed to establish convincingly that the 25% finding isn't the result of random chance. It is notoriously easy to find 25% or 50% effects of the kind shown in this paper for any effect you want. The study considered 388 people murdered at home and found that 174 of them had owned guns. They matched them with 388 similar people who were not murdered, 138 of whom owned guns. The first question you might ask is whether this difference could be the result of random chance if gun ownership has no effect on your chance of getting murdered at home. Statisticians call this the significance of the study. By arbitrary convention, most journals will accept publications if the significance is less than 5%. That is, if there is less than one chance in 20, your results are just random variation. The authors compute a 4% significance for the 174 murder victims with guns, but this calculation assumes all data is measured without error, that their sampling is perfectly random, and that all important control variables were included. Those assumptions are never met exactly in any real study, and this study is very far from ideal. A rough rule of thumb used by many practicing statisticians is to be taken seriously. An observational after-the-fact study like this needs to find a three-to-one effect. That is three times as many gun owners murdered in their homes as similar non-gun owners, regardless of idealized statistical calculation. Brown says that when studying topics like gun violence that are fully determined by human behavior, it's necessary to take a multidisciplinary approach, a requirement that may be lost on public health scientists trained to study disease. You fight an epidemic by trying to eradicate a pathogen. So the only solution to a gun violence epidemic is to get rid of guns. But violence is a more complex social problem than disease. Violence can do good as well as harm, and guns can protect as well as kill. In an epidemic, all deaths are equal and all are bad. But some gun deaths are good, the result of legitimate self-defense or law enforcement, and some are worse than others. Innocent bystanders, for example, versus suicide or armed gang members trying to kill each other. Gun control policy should be informed by criminologists, sociologists, psychologists, political scientists, legal experts, historians, and others. All of these fields have built up extensive knowledge about guns and violence. Yet this study, and most public health gun control research, cites only other public health researchers. That NRA strategy of hyper-polarizing the people worked out well for them but it had devastating consequences in terms of continuing gun deaths. The Times video asserts that not enough research has been done on the causes of gun violence and that Dickey is partly to blame. The real issue, Brown says, is quality, not quantity. The Dickey Amendment did not stop gun control research. The Rand Corporation tabulated 28,000 recent papers on gun control proposals. The problem is quality. Only 123 of those papers met minimal statistical standards. 
He said, isn't it true that you really want to get rid of all guns? And I felt, how dare him? This guy is really bad. Worse than not understanding, he doesn't care. Jay Dickey and I, at that point, were really kind of mortal enemies. The film is structured around the story of an improbable friendship. In the 1990s, Congressman Dickey and Mark Rosenberg, then director of the CDC's National Center for Injury Prevention and Control, went from adversaries to best friends. We started talking, and we actually started to trust each other, and we started to like each other. And over the years, that developed into an incredible friendship. Rosenberg convinces him to change his mind and repent. He is the former self-described NRA point person and now is a strong supporter of research. I think the CDC should do the gun research that relates to gun violence. You're the guy. It's your bill. I feel different now than I did before. Dickey, who died of Parkinson's in 2017, may have come to regret pushing for the amendment that bears his name. But he remained concerned about the 1993 study, which would have complicated the New York Times narrative in which the filmmakers left out. The New York Times film uses this clip. What changed? How did you have the change of heart? Well, I just think it's, uh, it's just the weight of all of the incidents that have occurred, and that is that the kids and the innocent people who are being killed deserve our attention. What the filmmakers cut out was Dickey's ongoing concerns about the 1993 study and how it was carried out. We wanted research done for gun violence, and that's what the money was paid for, but we found out that as we went along, that not only was the research being done just to support gun control, but we weren't be even given access to what the collected data was. So it was, it was clear that we needed to do something and to stop what was being done. That's exactly correct. Research funded by the CDC on gun violence is unscientific from the start. Guns are not a pathogen, and violence is not a disease to be controlled. What is needed is not propagandistic films or sloppy research. It's cross-disciplinary research on what drives human beings to violence, whether with a gun or not. Everything we have seen on this issue from the CDC indicates to me that they are the wrong organization to manage this research. So they clearly are, you know, this, is, this is not something the CDC should be researching. Uh, just the idea that they would view the gun as the pathogen means they'll never actually figure out why people kill. And that's what you have to figure out. you got to figure out why they're killing. And in, in that, the pathogen is not killing. No, no pathogen, no firearm has ever, while sitting alone and untouched by a human or something, has ever gone off and hurt anybody. <laughs> just a uh, fact. <laughs> yeah. And it's an undeniable fact. It's the person behind the gun. All right, with that in mind, we're up against the clock. Got to take a quick break. You're listening to Gary on Guns. Hey, welcome. It is, it is Gary on Guns. And uh, Jordan is in from Potterhorn Guns and Archery. Brought in several firearms. We're going to talk about that in show and tell in the next segment of the program. In the meantime, uh, Jordan, if I were a drug user... I mean, we knew that I was using drugs. I got drummed out of the military for it. And I went into Powderhorn Guns and Archery, and I bought a firearm, lied on my NICS check. And the government knew, the federal government found out, what would my punishment likely be? Oh, my 
gosh. Wow, that's so open-ended. Probably the first time, and if that's it, not much. It would probably, you'd probably get a letter, and they would say, hey, you can't do that. Don't do that. Would they come take the gun back? Mm, I don't know. I have never heard of that occurring on something as simple as that. I'm going to guess it'll depend where you live. Might it depend on (laughs) who you are? Well, 100%, sure. Oh, I mean, so. <laughs> that, that 100% is going to happen. So if if you're the, just, uh, let me just uh, throw this out there, just, uh, you know, uh, perhaps you're the son of, uh, oh, the President of the United States. <laughs> and uh, you've got this drug history and you lied on the Knicks check. <laughs> Would you get in a lot of trouble? <laughs> no, no, sir. No. <laughs> no. No, sir. No, sir. <laughs> I don't think there's any way around that one. According to a bombshell report in the Washington Post, federal agents have gathered enough evidence to charge Hunter Biden with lying on the paperwork he filled out to purchase a firearm. But prosecutors have been holding off for months on whether or not to actually prosecute the president's son. The Washington Post report goes to great lengths to point out that Attorney General Merrick Garland has left any charging decision up to the U.S. attorney in Delaware. But it's hard to argue that politics isn't playing a role. Cam Edwards uh, writes this at Bearing Arms. In whether not to prosecute Biden for not being honest about his drug use when filling out the paperwork required for a background check on all retail sales of firearms. He's, he's got some other problems, too, uh, some tax problems. But the firearms thing uh, struck me as kind of interesting that you know, it's the son of the president of the United States, a guy who's been advocating for gun control uh, seemingly forever. Remember, he's the one who wants his wife to fire a shotgun in the air in the event somebody is trying to break into the house. But there's no need for anything, you know, no ARs, no high-capacity magazines, none of those things. So Mr. Anti-Gun's son goes out and lies on the Knicks check and... You know, and wouldn't you have expected if he was as concerned as he sounds that he, you know, just surprised that he didn't come out and say something like, I'm so ashamed of my son. (laughs) Well, it's all starting to come together now, Gary. You've got, uh, so he lied on his form uh, because of drugs. Drugs, Mm -hmm. uh, CDC, public health emergency. So then we look at firearms, CDC being a public health emergency, and we say due to the public health emergency created for the f- the drugs, he was not aware of how to correctly answer that question on that <laughs> form, which is why it leads the CDC to needing uh, to investigate firearms as a public health emergency. Wow. There it is. Uh, you ever think of uh, being an attorney? <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm Clarence Darrow, look out. <laughs> that was quick. He did that extemporaneously. We didn't figure this out before the show. He just He just spewed that out. Amazing how it all comes together sometimes. <laughs> well, according to a book Hunter Biden later wrote about his struggles with substance abuse, he was using drugs heavily that year. Prosecutor, uh, prosecutions for false statements on gun purchase forms are relatively rare, but they do happen. Federal agents refer to these cases as lying and buying. Historically, prosecutors have significant discretion to decide which ones are worth federal resources. Prosecutor can say they have bigger fish to catch, or they can decide to seek a deal. 
according to a retired agent from BATF. It would seem to me that they would want a, you know, a high-profile case to send a message that you can't lie on the next check. And this would be it, wouldn't it? I guess, but at the same time, I would argue no. Look, people are people. They should get no special uh, uh, attention or special uh, circumstances just because they are who they are. And that should go either way. That I should treat them just like it is the same guy that, that earns $25,000 a year working at McDonald's should be treated the same way that Mr. Biden will be treated. It's, but the government, it shouldn't be different. The government doesn't work that way. I know. Every year at tax time, <laughs> they find the loudest tax protesters and they prosecute them and lock them up. Yep. And they do that so they can send a message to everybody else. Don't get on that bandwagon. Don't be a tax protester. So by the same logic that they do that, they should be going after him and saying, don't lie on your Knicks check. Here's what happens. And, it, it, you know, it, if it happens to Joe Blow, nobody knows. No, no message is sent outside of his family. But if it happens to the son of the president of the United States, wow. Now a message is heard all over the country. In fact, all over the world. So I think they should they should be going after him for this, and and they he might have already gotten the letter because when I've asked locally, when they've come and done audits, I say okay, so what happens on these? So either people that get denied later, um, and they lied on their form because obviously if they answer their form perfectly, and uh, they they end up getting a firearm because they don't get denied for sixty days, which happens all the time. Um, so we transfer a firearm, and then way down the road we get denied. I asked what happened with those, and most of the time they said we send them a letter. That's about it. We send them a letter making sure, you know, this, this, and this didn't happen. I'd say of the maybe, gosh, I don't know how many denieds I get in a year. Maybe 25, maybe 25 denieds in a year. I would say of those, I have to send in three of them where they, when they get denied, I actually have a, an ATF agent contact us and need to get copies of the form. So there's way more going on than just this. Um, that's it. Out of all of those, I'd say I get uh, a couple a year that they actually investigate. Yeah, most of them are, uh, frankly, mistakes anyway. Yeah. But that's perjury because you're lying on a, you're swearing, swearing that you're telling the truth. <laughs> all right, it's show and tell time. From Powderhorn Guns and Archery, Jordan has brought in some very interesting firearms. We'll chat about those next. I'm Gary Ungun.